Amen. Let's bow before the Lord. Lord, we desire, like David in the Psalms, to compose and quiet ourselves before you. And Lord, that's not only honoring to you and are you worthy of it, but it, but it does something for us to compose ourselves, to arrange all of ourselves before you, quiet ourselves before you so that we would be like a weaned child who rests against its mother, not being flailing, being anxious, but actually calmed by your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would establish your word to us, your sons and daughters and servants. Establish your word as that which produces reverence for you, not only in this hour, but as we leave and go into this week of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can give me just a little bit down. I'm I'm hot mic, hot mic. Well, hey, you're here. You made it. That's a good, it's a good thing to be here together. Uh, again, I say this often, but I love hearing you sing and hearing us sing together. But you're here. I just want to ask a simple question. How was it getting ready to be here this morning for worship? How was your ride here? How was from the car through the parking lot into here? How was that? Um, on the ride home, did you almost turn around and drive back? Yeah, me too. Some Sundays are easy, and, and you and I may find ourselves eager to worship. Several Sundays, if we're honest, can feel less chomping at the bit and more like a chore, can't they? That's why this series is good for us to go go through, and for it, God, to go through us. We're calling it weary-ship through Malachi. But as I even ask you about your car ride here or the getting ready, depending on kiddos and stuff like that, or your how much sleep you got last night, might determine how much today may feel like a chore. But ever think to yourself, and going to church it just kind of wears me out. I mean, it's tiresome. I I just don't get a lot out of it. I'm not sure I see the point of going. Well, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone in this world thinking that. You're not alone in this room, including on this stage, of going, I'm not sure I get the point. I'm a little worn out. As bored and weary worshipers, You and I are not alone. You and I have company, in fact, the company of others in the Scriptures, like in our passage in Malachi 1 today. If you flip there, we're going to be in Malachi 1. If worship is boring or a tiresome ritual to you, to me, if you've become a weary worshiper, what's God think of it? How does He react how does he evaluate that and then what is the reason and what is god's remedy for our wearied worship if you are a weary worshiper what would god say to you and me this morning well meet me in malachi 1 if you're still looking find matthew's gospel and then take a left about two pages if you go too quickly to the left you'll miss it it's a small book and we can often dismiss The smaller ones, the minor prophets thinking, yeah, they're minor because they don't have much to say and they sound kind of cranky and God sounds like he's having an off day himself with with how they come across. But Malachi 1, and we're going to actually begin in the middle of our passage in verse 10. I'm going to have it on the screen. Um, You can look at your version or perhaps look at verse 10 on the screen together with me and then we'll walk through the passage. Malachi chapter 1 Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Oh, good morning. Welcome to church. 
from this verse, would, would God really call for a shutdown? I mean, we have a lot of talk right now in our world, right, of a shutdown. Um, I, I Honestly, it, it so little gets my attention. I don't even, we could be in one right now. I don't know. Are we? All right. Nothing happened. I mean, stuff happened, but okay. We're, that, but would God really call for a shut, shutdown? Yes. But, but why? I mean, he says, shut the gates. And the gates would be those that, that keep you, um, they're kind of the portal you go through in order to get to where you would offer your sacrifices. He's saying, and that for them would be worship for the Jewish folks. Coming to temple, you go through certain courts and you get to a certain place, and now we're going to be offering the sacrifice, the little lamb, the dove, whatever we're bringing. He says, shut those gates so worship stops. That doesn't sound very godlike. I don't think you ever heard that. If you grew up in Sunday school, I don't think that was ever one of your memory verses for VBS. But it's, the, it's, it's real. It's coming from the real God to his people and the real situation. And the reality had, had reached such a repulsive place for God such a wearying place for his people that he said, I wish somebody had the courage. And he's talking particularly in the section we're in to the priests, to the leaders. Translate to us. We're not, this isn't the temple. I'm not a priest. But just translate. The leadership, he's addressing them. And he's saying, I wish one of you leaders had the courage to shut this down. He doesn't sound very happy. He says, I'm not pleased with you. And he's talking to the priest. You're setting the pace. You're setting the example, and it's pretty toxic, pretty repulsive, but also the people that you represent, me to them and them to me, and you're accepting what I would tell you is unacceptable. I'm not pleased with you, and I'm not accepting of their offering, so shut it down. Again, why? Well, it was wearying them, and it was wearying the Lord. We're going to see that later. He actually set, uses that phrase. Oh, yeah, well, it's wearing me out too. And Malachi, if you read it, is, it can be a pretty heavy book, and yet it's not without hope. It's not without, as we'll talk about today, remedy. doesn't mean here's your, here's your silver bullet pill, take this and you're fine. But it does mean there's still grace available. There's still invitation, though it is the Lord of hosts who is talking to us. Right now, he's not calling himself the God of all comfort. He is that. But he's also the Lord of hosts. So what's the reason for their weariness and God not loving it? And what's God's remedy for them and for us? Well, let's read the entire passage now. Uh, look back at verse 6. We'll read verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father. The people would understand they are sons and daughters, and God is a father. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, or maybe better, where is my fear? It says, The Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. But you say, How, how have we despised your name? And God answers their question. You're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly? Says the Lord of hosts. But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Why? For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. 
For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is, and you disdainfully sniff at it. Some of your translations say, and you snort at it. That's a good translation. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? Be, uh, but cursed be the swindler who is a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. Now again, I said he doesn't call himself the God of all comfort. He is. He's the God of all grace. He's the good shepherd. He's the God who we know will condescend and become flesh and dwell among us. But today, we need a fuller picture of God. We need the more rightly muscularized full picture of God that this is the Lord of hosts who speaks to his people through Malachi. It actually says eight times in this passage, he calls himself the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord of hosts who is talking to his people. Now, you, you're, if you remember from last week or you know a little bit about Israel's history, God had redeemed them. We talked about, and we, and we want to make sure we note this, as we're hearing this whew, hard stuff right now, if you sneak a peek up at verses 1 to 5, God says, I'm going to start not with law and where you're blowing it and where you're failing and you're disobeying. He starts with, I have loved you. And he started that way with his people. He didn't redeem them out of Egypt saying, all right, here's my law. Now you guys get to work on this. And if you can follow through on my law, then I might love you. No, in Deuteronomy 7, it says, I set my love on you. I set you apart so that I might have a people for my own possession. I did that out of mercy and grace. There was nothing lovely about you. There was nothing significant about you. There was nothing all put together and polished about you. I have loved you. And we pointed out last week, that's where he starts. But also even the tense that I have loved you. It's something I, I, it happened and it is happening and it will happen. You will not get out of my love. And he has set his love on these people. But as part of that love, he had also said, now here's what our relationship looks like. Because you did nothing to redeem yourself out of the slavery of Egypt. Here is my law. And by that, we get all like, ah, really tense about it. He's just saying, this is the way I've designed my world and my people to work and to live so that they might flourish in the world that I've created. How you can flourish in relationship with me and how you can be as I've always intended that I would bless you and through you, blessing would go out to the nations. But they decided to go after other gods. And so eventually, as any loving father does, we're told in Hebrews as well as Proverbs, you know how you're loved if you're a son or a daughter? You teenagers pay attention to this for a second, or tweenagers. If you're like, man, my, my parents are kind of strict. My parents are not letting me get away with stuff. Guess what they're doing? They're loving you. And God, in his love and in his holiness, had told them, hey, you obey me, I'll bless your socks off. If you disobey me, there's going to have to be discipline, and eventually it's going to look like being taken off into exile. They were. And remember, Malachi is after. He has now also, like he promised, returned them from exile. But they've been kind of, you know, they've kind of had some ups and downs. They, they started to rebuild the temple, but he had to get on them through Haggai, saying, you guys are spiritually procrastinating. You're paneling your own houses, but you're leaving my house undone, unfinished. And then they did that, and there was kind of a little bit of a revival, and Ezra and Nehemiah come along the scene, and Ezra rebuilds the walls, which were down, was causing the people insecurity. And then Ezra restored and rebuilt their attention to God's Word. 
But now, as we often do, there began to be kind of a languishing in that. They began to kind of grow indifferent. And if before exile, uh, Israel's sin was idolatry, going after other gods, now Israel's sin since the exile is much more indifference. Indifference that also then breeds selfishness. And it showed up how? Well, what's he upset about? Their ho-hum, half-hearted worship. And remember, the book of Malachi is framed by six disputes. Malachi voices the complaints and the, and the inner suspicions of the people. There's, there, you know, God, you're a bit sus here because we don't see you providing like we thought. And our food supplies seem to be running a little short. And the economy is going haywire. And we've got all kind of political corruption. And we've got corruption in religion and religious circles. And so... Malachi voices the inner murmurings of God's people. Well, here's our complaint, God. How have you loved us? You say you loved us. How have you loved us? What have you done for me lately? And that's what he answered last week. And, and, and we said that kind of the basic pattern is God's going to say something like, I have loved you, but you say, how have you loved us? And he says, you already know and you will see. And it's a little bit that pattern each time. We're in the second dispute where the Lord um, is worthy. He's loved them. He's worthy of honor and respect. And in fact, he says, if a father is due honor and a master um, is due from his slave a uh, respect and fear, where is my honor? Where is my respect? The word honor in Hebrew, it's a great word. It means heavy can also translate it glory, and sometimes glory, uh, the glory of God will be manifest. It will show up, and there's a heaviness in the moment. There's an instant sobriety, if you will. There's an instant woe. But then there's also, he's saying, I, so that honor is how you are living as my sons and daughters. Does that align with the honor, the heaviness that ought to be shown to a father. And as my servants, the one I redeemed, so that you might serve me, I'll bless you, and you serve me, and the nations will be blessed. Where is my respect? And it's, it is better fear. And by that, it means reverential awe. What we don't want to do today is go, yeah, yeah, but I know that really the fear of the Lord isn't afraid. I, I would tell you there's, there's room on the spectrum of the meaning in the Hebrew. Everything from reverence down to dread. And we said this a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that this generation growing up right now, particularly maybe young 20s down to zero, is that they're growing up. This is from a social um, psychiatry guy named Jonathan Haidt. He says, my fear for this generation is that they stand in awe of nothing. And by that he means, you remember the illustration of the Grand Canyon, that because their, their attention is so splintered, it's so blocked, it's so often drawn to other places, particularly through rectangles that glow, that, that they no longer stand in awe of anything. And by that he means, I'm in the presence of something that requires me to adjust to accommodate that which I'm in awe of. And that's what God's saying is missing, like the Grand Canyon. I started it, I didn't finish it. You go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, right? Or for me, the best I can come to that so far is being on the top of the Continental Divide in Colorado, and you just stop, and you are hushed. And all your little pettiness, you don't even remember what you were upset about on the ski lift on the way up or if you're at the grand canyon you don't dare play you know play around and go hey let's throw the frisbee on the rim of the grand canyon right and there's something both it draws you like you can't not look at it it's so beautiful it's so majestic it's so magnetic but it also humbles you and that's what the fear of the lord is and therefore the fear of the lord can't be 
can't be something that we get in little snatches. Even if it's a Bible verse that was had the right filter on it in Instagram and you look at it, that's a good thing not a bad thing but that kind of fear that kind of being heavied and being in awe and being like drawn to and then like I can't be near it that'll undo us that takes beholding and beholding takes time but as we've said a lot lately what we behold is what we become. And if we want to grow for us, we want to grow to be more like Christ, or we want to be more like God and the God we say we worship and say is worthy of all honor and glory, then it takes time to behold so that we might be heavied by his heaviness, so that also somehow at the same time be lifted by his majesty. And he says that is what is missing. You despise my name. And they say, their dispute is, how have we despised your name? This is the priest talking. They said, how, how is it we've despised your name? Or some of yours may say, how is it that we have defiled your name? And there's, you'll see defile, despise, or pollute three times in this passage. He's basically saying, you're despising my name, and where you can see it is how it shows up in your worship. Your worship is polluted, defiled, empty, worthless. He says, that's how you have despised my name. How have we despised your name? He says, well, there's three things. Three things he'll kind of go through in this section before he says shut the doors or gates. And then the section after, he kind of says the same thing in different intensities. So three ways in which God says, you despise my name. First of all, you despise my name by what you propagate. That's a big word. We need to learn some big words every now and then. Propagate, um, it also has the idea of just giving birth to something. And what they're giving birth to is the things they say over and over. And the more you and I say things more, you know, more and more. We actually become shaped by what we say. Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. But also, the more the mouth speaks, the heart gets shaped. And the more we are around folks, or you can actually know, the people you're around the most, and by what they talk about and you talk about with them, will shape your heart. It will reveal your heart first. But it will shape it. And he says it's by what you propagate. And what they say two different times is that the table of the Lord is to be despised. For them, this isn't the Lord's table like we celebrate here, the Lord's Supper. This means the altar. This means where they went to go and offer what cost them greatly out of their livestock stalls. See? I think he gave his all right. That was good worship right there. He says, by what you propagate, what you're doing is, is you're talking lightly about it. You're, you're looking at it um, lightly, and, you're, and you're, you've just begun to kind of go, man, this is just, I mean, what's the point? And even as people show up, and we'll talk about it in just a second, I mean, their sacrifice may be a little less. I mean, you know, it's all right. Just, yeah, let me just throw that up here. And He's saying, by what you propagate, these ideas, the things you begin to to talk about and the way you look at it, it's the way your own attitude at work happens, right? The more you're at the water cooler and you're around the people that complain about the boss and it's always the boss's fault and it's always the man keeping you down, it's always the system, guess who's going to start thinking that way? You. Even if you're best friends with the boss, you're like, well, I mean, yeah, she's kind of that way. or Well, yeah, he is that way. He's saying... You priests should be representing me to them. But what you're propagating is that I'm not worthy of them showing up at this. Or, yeah, we kind of get it like, you know, show up when you can. Show up with what you can. Saying You're saying that, that the food on my altar is defiled. It's polluted. Then why in the world are you offering it? So he's saying you despise my name by what you propagate, what you're talking about, the way you're causing people to see it by what you say. Secondly, by the worthless worship you offer. This is probably the biggest thing that stands out. When he, when he tells them in verse 10, you know, 
It's not acceptable. I'm not pleased with you. Look what you're offering. And he says it throughout. You, you offer that which was taken by violence. You steal somebody else's and you give it. Or it's lame, it's blind. And, and he's talking about their animals. You're going you're gonna to offer a lamb. You're going to offer a dove, whatever it is. God had told them in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those, those things that you stalled out on your year reading plan, like he tells them, here's what to bring. And here's why it should have no defect. And it's all about because I am holy, I am other than, I am great, I am worthy of it, I'm worthy of your best, so bring your best because that displays what you think of me. And in turn, that shapes your heart toward me. We say it this way, that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Matthew 6. And Jesus also in that same passage says, we cannot serve God and mammon or money, but it's better mammon. Because money is kind of a take it or leave it. It's some stuff in my, it's barely here. It's in your Apple Pay or whatever. We can kind of almost disregard it. But, but mammon is more, this is, what, this is where I give my devotion and where I place my security. And he says, where your treasure is. So in other words, you give your best and your heart will follow where you give. Your attention, your energy, your money, your oomph. And he says, yours is worthless. Why? Because they're offering less than their best. It's little expense to them. Another way of saying it is they were giving leftovers. This is a little bit like, um, some of this is just, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be a malintent is what I'm trying to say here. So the Kidney Foundation or ACO. And for me to go, and, and we've done this, on our best days we say, hey, we want to donate these couple of bikes that our boys have outgrown because that would bless a family here. They have kids, and they'd love to give their kids a bike or some, some clothes or some food or whatever, right? That's on our best day at the Lyles household. On a more pragmatic day and a detached heart kind of way, we'd say, get everything bagged up, go drop it off because we need to clean our garage out. And I'm saying that to say that is toward the way in which he's addressing them. You've got good stuff in the stalls. You've got your best over here, but you're not, that's untouchable for you because that either caused you insecurity or you're like, no, 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 this is kind of where I, you know, get my esteem, my sense of worth or whatever it is. And he's saying, I want your trust. I want your heart, which means give me your best. That's why I put it in our relational covenantal relationship deal. But they're bringing leftovers. They're bringing the lame. They're bringing the thing that they would have carted off to ACO anyway. And he's saying, that's worthless. Why would they do it? Well, it seemed practical and reasonable, given the bad economic times. Maybe God seemed absent, so, eh, you know, what have you done for me lately? But our worship, just like theirs, is also worthless when it's just going through the motions. It's empty. That's what the word means. Vain, empty, worth. There is no meaning in it. Because your heart isn't in it. And this isn't the first time. Look at this uh, in Isaiah. So Isaiah was written around 700 B.C. Malachi is around 430-ish B.C. So a good three, I'm terrible at math, 300-ish, almost 400 years. Isaiah, to the people... God through Isaiah. Then the Lord said, because these people draw near, so that's a worship action. They draw near with their words and they honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Okay, this is ritual. This is routine. Routine is not bad. Habits are not bad. I said this last week. I'll just keep saying it every week. The answer is not, I don't really feel authentically eager about worshiping God, so I'm not going to gather with God's people today to worship. The devil would love for you to have that idea. 
He's not saying that. But he is saying, be careful if when you show up and your heart's not engaged, do business with the Lord right then and there. Tell him, Lord, I'm singing this, but my heart's not there. Help my heart get there. At least you're engaging him. He says, don't just get on the go through the motions wheel and your heart is farther and farther away. The next verse, therefore, because your hearts are far from me, God says to Isaiah, Behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people. Now, we read that, or some of your translations, if you have it open, would say wondrously. And we think, oh, what a good God he is. He doesn't mean that, what you think. By wondrously, marvelously, he means, oh, I'm going to get your attention. And it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be marvelous, meaning, wow. But notice what it is. I'm going to deal marvelously with them. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. In other words, and I listened to Matt Chandler on this this week. I thought it was really good. He said, other words, I'm just going to, all the smartest and best people you got, they're just going to make your, your, your culture worse because they're going to become idiots because they forsake me, and therefore the the other idiots, that's us, following them, will all just become idiocracy. That's what he's saying when he says wondrously and marvelously. Why? Because you go through the motions, and you offer me a song, and you throw a little meat to me, the deity, to keep me off your back, but your heart is far from me. Again, welcome to church. This is a warm, encouraging Sunday, right? Next slide. He also says, how do, I despise, how do you despise my name? You despise my name by what you profane. By what you profane. Another word we don't use much, but we need to learn it. To profane something. So some of you have heard, you know, your parents, kids, hey, I don't want you to use profanity. Profanity is curse words, but it's also not just curse words. It's just treating things that should have weight to them as if they're light and you'd be flippant about them. And he says, you're despising my name in your worship by what you profane. To profane means abusive disrespect. It means literally for them, the word has the idea of being outside the temple. So it's in the common areas. It's in the non-set-apart, thoughtful, sacred areas. He says, you profane your worship. It's to reduce something to being common that was not intended to be common. And the worship of God is not only not intended to be common, it's intended to be the pulse of our lives. What matters most to God is that he matters most to us. And the way that gets displayed and shown and muscularized in our lives is through worship. And what worship literally means is to declare worth. He says, so you're, you're declaring that I'm kind of common and ordinary and easily discardable by how you worship. How do you despise my name? Make my name common. Make, make my name a throwaway phrase. By name, it means character. It means reputation. It means what we think of him. So priest, you're causing my people to be dulled in their perception of me, their esteem of me, their honor and fear of me, you priests, you leaders, you're enabling them and even giving them vocabulary and ways of living that reduce me down in their eyes. He says, that's how you're despising my name. That's why he says, shut the gates. Quit worship. David says it this, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, and he, had, he hid that sin forever until God was gracious to send a hard word through Nathan. You are the man. And he says, I have sinned. And then later he says, because of that, he says, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven. When I hid my sin, my, my inner being was like wilting away as in the fever heat of summer. That's how bad his sin was. And he knew it. Psalm 51, he confesses his sin. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. But at the very end of that psalm, after confession, he says, you don't delight in sacrifice and all these offerings. 
but you delight in a broken and contrite heart, or a broken and contrite heart, Lord, you will not despise. God won't despise those of us who maybe in our lives we've been despising, but we're broken and contrite about it, and we approach him. And we say, I have sinned against you. And, and when we come and we say, Lord, I am so grateful for us. I'm so grateful that Christ died for every one of my sins that happened after he died. And that in him, I've been given life and life to the full. But I've been not living on full, Lord, because I've been living for myself. I've been to, we wouldn't use the language. I've been treating you lightly. I've been keeping you on the shelf. I've been keeping you as an afterthought. Afterthoughts never change anybody. I'm going to say more about that in a little bit. How have you despised my name? By what you propagate, by the worthless worship you offer, and by what you profane. Um, a good encapsulation from Eugene Peterson's message version. Next slide. Uh, there should be one in between. Isaiah, excuse me, Malachi 1, 12, and 13. There it is. This is another way of saying it. He says, instead of honoring me, you profane me. You profane me when you say worship is not important, and what we bring to worship is of no account. And when you say I'm bored, this doesn't do anything for me. Let me also say, this also doesn't do anything to him. He's not weakened because you have a weak picture of him. Not one bit. It does something to you and me. It erodes reality from your life because the reality is he is Lord and you are not. The reality is he's worthy of everything I got. And he purchased me on the cross. And I've been bought with a price, therefore I'm not my own, I'm his. So all of me, all of my life, is do him. Otherwise, I am profaning his name. How did God, how does God evaluate their worship? Really quick, going back through what was missing. Honor shown to a father. Respect and fear that's due a master and Lord. He says, you're despisers and defilers of my name. You are, your worship is not merely inadequate, it is evil. I am not pleased. I will not accept your offerings. And then he says in the, the last couple verses, you are swindlers or cheats not sacrificers. I want you to see in this, our worship is to be the same, though not the same. We're not to bring animals. There's no altar. This isn't even the sanctuary. I know some of you grew up calling it a sanctuary. It's fine. It means a set-apart place for worship. We call this the auditorium because you are now the temple, and we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, worshiping wherever we go. But there is something special about when we gather to worship him. But I want you to hear this. I, start, I said this earlier. He starts with love in the first five verses. I have loved you, and I will continue to love you, and I will always love you because I've set my heart on you. He said that. I want you to know there's a difference between God loving us and still being able to not be pleased with us. Our culture would say, if you're ever have any displeasure about any way of living that I have, then you don't love me. That's a falsehood. Every single parent in here knows. For you kids, you may start running off the rails. You can never cause us to not love you. You can't. We didn't know we were capable of that until we saw you come into our family, saw you come into the world. That doesn't mean that we can fully love you and always love you doesn't mean there aren't going to be times where like, man, but I'm convinced of better things for you. I, I, I want for you to flourish in all the ways God intended. I want you to see that though that seems right to you, its end is destruction. And if we truly love you, like he says, where's the honor to a father? Because he's the truest of fathers and his love is perfect. Perfect love not only casts out fear, perfect love disciplines so that we might be brought more and more to maturity and to the purposes God has for us. All right, what's the reason? There's a reason and a remedy, and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of pick up our pace here to come to an end. What is the reason 
that God says to shut down this worthless worship and what's the remedy for his people then and for us today? Well, the reason um, is my name will be great. He says this at least three times and there's an expansiveness to this. My name will be great among the nations. He says it multiple times. His intention had always been to set apart this people who weren't anything so that they would grow to know him and that through their relationship with him, being such pipsqueak, pitiful people, but look at what their God has done so that his name would be expansive because it would make no sense that these people would have any significance whatsoever, and yet look how they're blessing others. He's always intended his name would be expansive with his people Israel. It's so that they would live in such a way that they'd be different, set apart. It'd be noticeable, and they'd say, what is it with you? And they would come to become God-fearers and to come to know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as they kind of came to the temple. For us, ours is to go out to all the nations. Same idea that the name of God would be expansive to all the nations. What is that name in this passage? It's Lord of hosts. Host there, some of yours might say Lord of angel armies. Some of yours might say Lord of armies. This is a military term. This is why also it, it signals to God's people through Malachi, um, this isn't a meeting you can attend or not attend or, or you know, kind of check out while you're sitting in the meeting. The Lord of hosts is addressing you. And he says it eight times. It's the signal. It's a military term. It means this is an army that's at the ready to do what the commander wants. So, attention. Lord of hosts. Secondly, his name will be great and expansive. Uh, Just, as I said earlier, he doesn't need your worship. God is not twiddling his thumbs, really hoping you might like him or might throw him a bone. He's not. In verse 10, he says, shut the doors because their worship was sloppy. It was disengaged worship when they showed up. They probably, like our culture, also weren't very regular in their showing up. That's not a shot at you right now, whether, I mean, you're sitting here. You made it. It's not a shot at anyone. It is saying God doesn't need our worship. We need worship because it's beholding something of beauty and power and majesty. It's actually the only way that we are changed, and we need changing. We need transforming. But he wants his name to be expansive so more can worship him. Thirdly, my name will be great, and by that he means magnified. You know, think of what we do with both a telescope um, and a magnus, microscope. Excuse me. You want to you be able to see something that you can't really see, and then you also want to see something for what it really is up close. And in so doing, it changed us. The Lord would say to them, I have provided for you what I have revealed and required of you, in your worship offerings to me. What he requires is preparation. Only your best, which means you got to be prepared. For them, what that meant was you got to take a little lamb when it was just born, and you got to feed that little lamb and care for that little lamb. And because you care for that little lamb, and there's like seven of them, you're like, all right, I'm going to tie a blue ribbon on that one and a red ribbon on that one, and that one is going to be, you know, little Johnny, and, and that one's going to be, you know, Susie, sorry, I don't, I don't name lambs very often. Um, but let's just say little Johnny or Bucko. Let's call him Bucko. Well, little Bucko grows up. Little Bucko is part of your family. Your kids, because they're part of your family, they're also doing the work, and they go out and feed, and they go out and learn to shear and all those kinds of things, right? Why do I tell you all that? God designed their worship to where it would have to be personal, and would have to take the preparation of this little lamb someday might be the one that we eat at home only, or it might be the one that is we can go and offer to God as an act of worship, which declares our trust in his work. It took time. Okay, and so we think about it. We can't just worship God in snatches. We also need to be careful not uh, 
to be unprepared in worship when we gather on a Sunday. We come frantic in, we leave frantic quickly. And again, that's not a guilt thing at all. That is what has God designed it to be and why? And, and think about the times when you've been prepared for something and how your experience of that time went. And if I show, if you asked me to do your wedding or your funeral and I showed up and I didn't give it any thought, you think it'd be a good funeral or wedding? I mean, you wouldn't know because you'd be dead. But, right? And the preparation, actually, I'm just telling you this is somebody like, people are like, man, how can you get them to a funeral? I'm like, actually, it helps me articulate my grief because I've thought about these people and how important they are and significant to the family. There's something that changes me in it. There's something that changes you and me before we get here. The question is, are you putting in the kind of time where your worship on a Sunday might have a little more weight to it because of preparedness? God required them to prepare that which would be sacrificed. And then they had to go and lay their hands on it. And then we'll watch it die. Could no longer be food on their table. It had to be sacrificed. I, I said afterthought earlier, I would just say this. I think for many of us, if we're honest, we're weary in worship when we show up here. We're weary in life, right? I'd say you're weary in worship here or you're weary in life because God is, God is more and more an afterthought. I'm not hammering you, I'm hammering myself. Think about it. I, and I, I wrote this down for myself. I said, we live in a world of splintered attention, which we think is acceptable and should be acceptable until the one who receives splintered attention is me. You think about it. You, some, some friend that's been a dear friend and y'all hadn't seen each other for a while and you say, hey, let's meet at, you know, Lazy Dog. I like going there. Let's meet at Lazy Dog. And you sit down and you just can't wait to catch up. And they pull out their phone and they just start checking their fantasy football team. Now, if you're a guy, we give a little, we give five-minute grace period for that, whatever. But... <laughs> why don't you why would you be okay with that I mean there's something that says to you man I mean you're almost an afterthought to me something more and much more important is here we give attention to that which is most important to us we give our best to that which is not you will never give your best to someone or something that's an afterthought what I'm saying is don't beat yourself up about that Start saying, Lord, I want you to be my first thought and my foundational thought and my central thought. Because I can tell you, you cannot make him your first thought and life will go, but you know your life is discombobulated and you know your life is restless. And you know that uh, even because if we're not fearing the Lord, then we're fearing man. And so therefore I've got to keep buying these things to keep up with the Joneses and I've got to do these things with my life and my time and give my attention here so you might be impressed with me so that someday maybe I might rise in your status. That person hadn't thought about you at all. And we do all that out of the fear of man rather than the fear of the Lord. And it's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And what is wisdom? It's skillfully navigating the way God designed life to be in relationship with him so that we might flourish and others might blessed because his name is getting expanded. And that comes at a cost. That's the last point. He says it's got to be expensive. David in 2 Samuel and also in Chronicles, somebody offered when he knew David wanted to offer, he said, hey, here's some of my you know, flock. And he says, no, I will. He said, have it for free. He says, no, I'll surely buy it at full price. He says, for I will not take what's yours. That would be stolen. I will not give to the Lord what really wasn't mine. Or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. I think in Samuel it says, I will not give the Lord that which costs me nothing. Worship is expensive. The worship that God deserves is expensive. The worship that magnifies his name is expensive. And so the question is, is the Lord receiving from you the worship he's looking for in your life when we're not here and when we gather for worship? You think about the Lord, uh, the worshipers the Lord seeks. In John 4, I have a slide, 4, 23 and 24. He basically says, I, I'm the Lord seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. That means your whole life. 
And then Malachi says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, in every place, in every nation, his name would be great and magnified. And then later in John 4 right here, he says, it'll be neither in this mountain or another mountain. It's because the Lord seeks worshipers who would declare his greatness and his grace and exalt his great name by giving our best, not half-hearted, whole-hearted, whole life in every area of life. That's why we say constantly, worship is a way of life. We throw up the next slide about our value. We treasure Christ-centered worship. That doesn't mean we're all arrived there. It means that we're trying to aspire to that. We treasure Christ-centered worship that's authentic. I'm all in, joyful, and it's a way of life. It's our whole life response to him when we gather and scatter, and that declares his supreme worth in our lives above all other relationships. Where are you in growing in that? And where would God say, I want my name to be magnified in you as you give me your whole heart, you give me your, all your attention as I'm not an afterthought so that you might be a reflector or as we say, an ambassador of my grace to those who are hungry and starving to be known by you and to be known by God. God would say, instead of fearing and respecting me, often you trifle with me. He'd say, I'm inviting you out of being flippant. I'm inviting you out of superficialness, which you already know is kind of like, what's the point? He said, it's not what's the point, am I worthy of worship? It's what the, what's the point of you going through motions if your heart is far from me? And he's saying, I'm inviting you back. And in that return, may he be magnified. Well, I said it's expensive. I want the worship team to come up. As we close, it's what it cost us, our whole heart, our attention, giving our best, not half-hearted. But think about what it cost him. His love for you and for me was and is expansive, and it's expensive. His cost was great in giving his son's life to give us a share in his name. You know that Christian means little Christ. He loved, so he gave. Why? So that his name would be great. Because of Christ's expensive offering of himself, God the Father has rewarded him the name that is above every name, that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our invitation right now. I want you to stand, because the proper, the fitting way of responding to one so worthy, so great, but so gracious is to hold those two in tension. He is the Lord of hosts, but he's the Lord who became flesh, dwelt among us and died in your place and mine on the cross. So we're going to sing of his grace and we're going to finish singing of his greatness. And then I'll come and dismiss us.